All right, if you could turn your chairs back this way. Hey, uh, one of the things that uh, Dan just mentioned during the uh, announcement time was this uh, living with cancer seminar done by a local pastor, Rich Holderman. Rich, Rich is a great guy, and uh, I think he really feels passionate about this because he's had leukemia for a number of years. So if you know anybody, I don't, I don't think it's going to be overly churchy or anything, but it's uh, the Bloomington Reformed Presbyterian Church, which is right down, first, it's over down by First Street. But um, if you want more information about it, but Rich is a great guy, and like I said, he's had leukemia, I don't know, for three years, two, three, four years. So it should be pretty good. Um, the interesting thing I did this week, yeah, and, okay, Bill, Bill will have him over there. So it's this, like, is it Wednesday night or Thursday? Tuesday night, Tuesday night. Um, the interesting thing I did this week was had to track down my van that had been towed in Washington, D.C. Totally unjust. I'm going to appeal. So... Anyway, the, the signage was actually uh, not complete and not accurate. But we got the van, and so had a good time. So anyway, hey, let's pray, and then we're going to look into God's Word today. Uh, God, we, we acknowledge earlier in one of our songs that, uh, that we welcome you here, that you're here. And we welcome you with praise, and we acknowledge your presence. But sometimes we don't always maybe get that or make that connection that in this very room your spirit is present you you're among us in these rows uh, you're around us in these rickety white chairs and your spirit um, is active in every single person's life who's here so on behalf of every single person who's here i'd ask that you speak to us speak to us individually speak to us in ways that only you can speak to us and give us ears to hear what you want us to hear let me ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. I don't know if any of you have remember seeing in newspapers uh, the Miss Manners column. Um, Judith Martin. I don't think it runs in pay. It's still in the Washington Post. But I thought we'd take a little bit of time to kind of refresh some of our manners and what is appropriate behavior in social circumstances. So I've got a couple of her letters I'm going to read, all right? So this is people, th people wrote these in asking for what is proper etiquette. And she calls herself an authority, an, an etiquette authority. Etiquette being what is right, proper, and socially acceptable behavior, right? Which we all really care about, all right? First one. Dear Miss Manners, in the past few weeks I've noticed several cashiers and bank tellers asking if I have any plans for the day or asking how my day is going so far. When I mentioned this to a store manager, the response was they were merely trying to be friendly. I do not feel that the answer to either of these questions is any business of theirs, and I am at a loss of how to answer the second question without being rude. So then Miss Manners always answers, Dear gentle reader, as failing to answer is a bit, heart, bit, bit, heart, bit harsh and even phony, you could say, I do thank you, but I'm afraid I'm running late. Would you mind just taking care of my business? All right. Uh, Dear Miss Manners, I have a few friends I invite out socially, but some of them have started declining my invitations with a succinct, succinct I'll pass. I'm in my late 20s, and I've always declined invitations by first thanking the person for the invitation and then expressing apologies for not being able to attend. I feel that, quote, I'll pass is a somewhat rude way of declining an invitation. How many of you have said I'll pass in the last week, probably, right? After all, I'm not passing around a plate of cookies. I admit that it does bother me, and I find myself inviting those friends out less and less. Since when has I'll pass entered their vernacular and become an acceptable way of declining an invitation? 
Gentle reader, it has not, neither for the invitation nor for the cookies. Miss Manners reminds you that she stands between the vernacular and acceptable and refuses to give rudeness a pass. So she's all about rudeness, all right? My husband and I have, dear Miss Manners, my husband and I, this is a good one, have had a long-standing discussion on the appropriateness and politeness of the phrases please and may I. I feel that the request, may I have the sugar, is just as polite as can you please pass the sugar. <laughs> We're thinking this is kind of trivial, right? My husband feels that if the request does not contain the word please, then it's not polite. And if you use may I, you need to tack on the word please, as in may I have the sugar, please. We would enjoy having your thoughts on this debate. Dear gentle reader, your husband may enjoy Miss Manor's thoughts more than you. He is correct. <laughs> All right. Um, just thought that was interesting in the, in the age of the online world. I'm horrified, dear Miss Manners, I'm horrified and disgusted that electronic invitations have changed the nature of offering hospitality. It is particularly distasteful to view a guest list and the responses from each, whether responding yes, no, or maybe. Since when is maybe a legitimate RSVP? Right? Maybe. Have you all done that on Facebook? I personally refuse to respond through one of those buttons. Therefore, my response is not shown on the website, causing my name to stand out as one who has not answered. Silly and embarrassing, your thoughts, please, on this outrageous application as a tool for invitations. And Miss Manners says she thinks maybe is not really an appropriate response anyway. So, Last one, dear Miss Manners, is it proper to leave a spoon in a cup or glass while drinking coffee, tea, or iced tea? Anybody? Anybody? All right. No, Miss Manners says. Watching the spoon attempting to bang on the drinker's nose is unnerving, regardless of whether it succeeds. So this whole, I mean, you could go on Miss Manners' website, you could find out all kinds of ways about how to behave, on what's appropriate behavior, polite behavior, socially acceptable behavior, all right? I wrote a few of my own now, all right? I wrote these. I didn't write them to her. I didn't take the time to send them to her, but... Because, again, we're talking about what is appropriate, proper, dignified behavior, all right? And you'll recognize these are some stories I wrote kind of from the Bible. Dear Miss Manners, I'm a student of a respected teacher by the name of Jesus. I'm one of a select group of 12 who regularly travel with him. Recently, a Gentile woman, parentheses, not one of us, interrupted his important ministry time by shouting and begging quite loudly for Jesus to help some kind of problem with her daughter. I, along with my other friends, felt this woman was quite inappropriate and out of line with his interruptive emotional outburst, and frankly, she was being quite a bother. We all told Jesus to send her away. Were we right in suggesting this? Next one. Dear Miss Manners, my son has some serious emotional behavioral problems. Some would even say demonic. I heard about this man, Jesus, who had the ability to heal such issues, so I went to find him. When I asked for his help, I thought it was polite not to be too demanding, so I simply said, if you can, when asking for my request. It obviously didn't sit too well with Jesus, but since I really was desperate, I think I let my emotions get the best of me, and I instantly cried out quite loudly to Jesus, reiterating my desire for him to heal my son. Was this, an emotional, was this emotional outburst a breach of proper etiquette? Next one. There's a, beggar in our, there's a beggar in our town by the name of Bartimaeus. Everybody knows him. He's blind, and he's been begging for years. We try to help him when we can, but honestly, he can be rather rude and inappropriate at times. For example, only recently, I was part of a large crowd waiting to see a great miracle man by the name of Jesus. I, have arrived early, I arrived early and was near the front. Bartimaeus, of course, came late and was near the back of the crowd. 
While the rest of us were being polite and orderly, he started shouting, trying to get the attention of Jesus. I was one of a group of people who yelled at him to be quiet. Rudely, he only shouted louder. I was angered at him for such an outburst. My wife disagrees with me. I'm adding, this didn't happen in the Bible. This part didn't happen. My wife disagrees with me, even suggesting that I should have helped Bartimaeus get up further to see Jesus. I think I was simply encouraging proper etiquette. My wife thinks I was the rude one. Please settle this debate with my wife. Last one in terms of appropriate behavior. I've been a Christian for many years. This, maybe this is you. Maybe this would be you. The other three were stories from the Bible. I've been a Christian for many years, and for the most part, it's been okay for me, and my life is doable. Not great, but not as bad as other people. I should be grateful, right? However, lately, I feel this inner frustration with my life. I don't do what I want to do, and I keep doing what I don't want to do, and this frustration shows up in my personal life, my marriage, my finances, and in my relationships with friends and neighbors. This inner frustration and disappointment is deep enough that it almost feels desperate. Although I wouldn't admit that publicly, admitting that I'm desperate in front of others seems so socially inappropriate, a major social faux pas. For that matter, admitting I am desperate even to God himself seems to violate proper religious behavior. So I'm at a loss for what to do. Please help. My point is, I'm wanting us to challenge together, and we'll look at some stories in the Bible, what is appropriate even behavior as Christians? What's proper response what's proper ways to pray what's appropriate what's polite what's dignified because sometimes many times we get caught up in what all those call the religious culture and there's certain ways you do behave and you don't behave in the religious culture because you want to we want to behave in a socially acceptable way that we perhaps start closing off parts of our heart because we're concerned about whether we're behaving appropriately and we're going to look at some stories today, three different accounts, and those three of those fake letters from Miss Manners uh, came from these three different accounts about people who acted in what was considered socially inappropriate, religiously improper, impolite ways to get the attention of Jesus. And I'm wondering perhaps if some of us may actually learn from some of these socially inappropriate, uh, poor etiquette, impolite people in terms of how they got the attention of Jesus been doing a series the last few weeks. We can get her picture off the screen now. Thank you very much. Uh, doing a series the last number of weeks called Face to Face with Jesus and talking about looking at actual conversations people had with Jesus, their words, his response, and in doing so, starting to ask ourselves, what can we learn about Jesus? How do we learn to see the real Jesus and not the Jesus that our maybe religious culture has created, but let's look and see how he really acted in certain situations. Now, in all these situations today, uh, the face-to-face interaction happened with somebody crying out. And that's the actual words that occur in these situations where the person responding cries out to Jesus. Now, let me explain this term of cry out because we're going to look at conversations with Jesus the next few weeks where people cry out, whether it's Palm Sunday or even uh, Easter Sunday where these conversations involve kind of this outburst of crying out, all right? The word for crying out, and I don't often go into the original language, but it's helpful in this case. The word for crying out in the New Testament is kradzo. Say that word, kradzo, all right? It is a automatopoeia, which means it's a word that's meant to sound like what you're actually doing, kind of like bang, pow, all right? 
kradzo is kind of the sound, in the ancient world, it was a sound like a frog or a croak or some kind of a uh. It was kind of this utterance. This is uh. It was this crying out, croak, groaning, whatever. And the ancient world considered it actually somewhat inappropriate to cry out that way. Um, rather, rather opting for a more subdued, socially appropriate way to get someone's attention. So all these three different stories we're going to look at today include someone who crodzoed to Jesus. They cried out. They croaked. I mean, I don't mean croak, but you know what I mean. They, they, it was more than just polite King's English. It was, there was an emotional intensity to what they were saying. And let me just add this too. Emotions are not um, sinful. Sometimes people think, well, you don't want to get too emotional. Jesus, Jesus was quite emotional. He had the whole range of emotions from being deeply distressed the night before he was betrayed to being angry at the temple when they were selling things to being overjoyed at certain things. So Jesus had the full emotional response as human being, also being God, as we have had. We've had a full, we have full emotional responses. So let's look at some of these situations where people cried out to Jesus. And let's go to the next one, because first I want to say this. The overarching part of the gospel, the gospel, the good news, the good news of Jesus, which was the kingdom of heaven is near, life with God is now possible for you. When Jesus kicked off his ministry, said he went through Galilee, he taught in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, which basically was you can have a conversational friendship with God. Life with God is now possible for everyone. And part of his message, part of his preaching was healing every disease and sickness among the people. So Christianity, the gospel message, is not simply get the doctrine right so you have your heaven ticket, but it was also the fact that Jesus came to heal brokenness, physical, emotional, spiritual brokenness, what Jesus came to do. That's part of the gospel message. That's part of what it means to follow Jesus, is just to be an ambassador on his behalf as well as a tool for the healing of others starting with yourself. So let's go three different stories we're going to look at where people, and I'll kind of show where the word shows up, where people cried out to Jesus. The first one is this. This was my first Miss Manners letter. This is from Matthew chapter 15. Starting with verse 21. I'll just read so you can just listen. Then Jesus left Galilee and went north of the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Gentile woman who lived there came to him. Now, Gentile meaning she wasn't a Jew. And at that point, the Jewish people believed exclusively that the message of the gospel, in this case, even the message of Jesus, was for Jews only. So Gentiles were outsiders. Um, they were not considered even part of the, the covenant of God. So right away, Jesus is starting to buck the system here. But a Gentile woman who lived there came out to him, and the word this translation says is pleading, but it's the word kradzo. So she was crying out. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David, for my daughter is possessed by a demon that torments her severely. Now, I read that somewhat emotionally flat. I suppose if it was a movie and we were casting somebody to play this woman and she was crodzoing, crying out to Jesus, she might have cried something like, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David! My daughter has been affected by a demon! I mean, she was probably not concerned about whether Miss Manners would approve of her behaviors because she was desperate. She cried out, but Jesus gave her no reply, not even a word. 
that's a little bit interesting. Then the disciples urged him to send her away. Like, really? Here, this woman's wanting help, and the disciples, who often didn't get it, just like we often don't get it, wanted to send her away. Tell her to go away, they said. She is bothering us with all her begging. She is violating socially appropriate norms of religious behavior. Then Jesus said to the woman, I was sent only to help God's lost sheep, the people of Israel. And don't jump to the conclusion here that Jesus is being mean-spirited. He's not. He's actually kind of setting up the conversation for the disciples' benefit to see what's going to happen. But she came and she worshipped him, pleading again, crodzoing again, crying out again, Lord, help me! Jesus responded, it isn't right to take food from the children and throw it to the dogs. Okay, let me stop there. You might think, whoa, that's kind of mean spirit of Jesus. He's telling her a dog. No, Jesus, what he's doing, he's repeating what the Jewish people always said about Gentiles, and he's doing this for the disciples' benefit. Because he wasn't making fun of this woman. He was repeating simply what the culture, because he was trying to show the disciples and to show us that certain, certain norms about how we think about things really should just be destroyed. So then she says, that's true, Lord, but even the dogs are allowed to eat scraps that fall beneath the master's table. And then Jesus says, dear woman, your faith is great, your request is granted. And her daughter was instantly healed. So Jesus, all along, was planning to heal her. He just wanted the disciples to realize the social norms they had about inappropriateness of Gentiles being part of wanting to connect with God. Jesus wanted to destroy that for them because sometimes the socially appropriate, polite, appropriate ways of behaving that we have established aren't really the way that God sees things. So this woman who was distressed, I mean, I can't imagine what it would be like to have uh, a daughter and her, this woman's daughter's situation. I can't imagine the desperation she must have felt. But she had no problem because of her desperation of crying out to Jesus to get his attention in, in what was then considered socially inappropriate, impolite, undignified ways. All right, next one. Now we jump to uh, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9. And I had it marked in my Bible, but I lost my marker. So this is another situation where somebody has, this case, is a, it's a son who has some issues uh, with demonic issues. And you might, let me step back on this one too. Some of you might think, well, they probably thought they were demonic. They were probably just behavior issues. When the Bible says there were demonic issues, we believe there were demonic issues. We don't always know how that fleshed itself out, but we believe there was something of evil going on in the life of this little boy. So you can imagine, again, the father's desperation. He didn't need parenting technique 101. He didn't need behavior management techniques for parents. He needed a miracle. All right. When they returned to the other disciples, this is uh, Mark chapter 9, they saw a large crowd surrounding them, and some teachers of religious law were arguing with them. When the crowd saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with awe, and they ran to greet him. What's all this arguing about, Jesus asked. One of the men in the crowd spoke up and said, Teacher, I brought my son so you could heal him. He's possessed by an evil spirit that won't let him talk. And whenever this spirit seizes him, it throws him violently to the ground, and then he foams the mouth and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast out the evil spirit, and they couldn't do it. So here this guy thought he was coming to get a... Miracle of healing for a son, and the right-hand people of Jesus couldn't do it. So you can imagine already his desperation has turned into frustration. Jesus said to them, 
You faithless people. He's saying this to his disciples. How long must I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought the boy, but when the evil spirit saw Jesus, it threw the child into a violent convulsion. He fell to the ground, writhing and foaming at the mouth. How long has this been happening? Jesus asked the boy's father. He replied, since he was a little boy. The spirit often throws him into the fire, into in the water, trying to kill him. Some of you, a lot of you have children. Can you imagine if you had a child where a pattern of this kind of behavior, how much it would tear at your heart? So this father obviously is desperate. The spirit often throws him into the fire and the water trying to kill him. Have mercy on us and help us if you can. I'm assuming the if you can was thrown in there because he wanted to be somewhat appropriate and polite and not demanding of Jesus. But Jesus really wouldn't put up with that because what do you mean if I can? Jesus asked. Anything is possible if a person believes. Then the father goes into crozzo mode. He's crying out. Then the father instantly cried out, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. Instantly. So you kind of get the sense that he finally let the genuine emotion of his desperation come out in real genuine ways. He said, no, I, know, I, I do believe. Help me. Help me in my unbelief. And sometimes we're really good, I'm really good, at learning how to keep those things at bay because we want to make sure our requests to God or to Jesus are spoken to in appropriate ways, non-demanding, God, if you can, if you could arrange this, I'd appreciate that. Um, and we feel like that's the right way to approach God. Sometimes it is. I'm not saying it never is. I'm just saying that sometimes we have these perceptions of how we're supposed to approach God. But in this case, the man cries out, crodzos, cries out, screams, emotionally intense. I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw the crowd of onlookers was growing, he then rebuked the evil spirit. He said, listen, you spirit that makes this boy unable to hear and speak, I command you to come out of this child and never enter him again. Then the spirit screamed and threw the boy into another violent convulsion and it left him. The boy appeared to be dead. A murmur ran through the crowd and the people said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and helped him to his feet. And he stood up. So here again, this father, just like the mother earlier, had a real desperate situation. Got to the point where they threw off all socially acceptable norms and cried out to Jesus for healing. Next one, last one. Mark chapter 10. Uh, story of a man named Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus was a blind man. This occurs like in, uh, in the city of, near the city of Jericho. This is uh, Luke, Mark chapter 10, verse uh, 46. Then they reached Jericho, and Jesus and his disciples left town. A large, a large crowd followed him. A blind beggar named Bartimaeus was sitting beside the road. When Bartimaeus heard that Jesus of Nazareth was near, nearby, he began to shout. Uh, the word there is again, crozo, cry out. He began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And again, he probably was something more like, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He was trying to get Jesus' attention. He wasn't going to keep his voice down. He wasn't going to speak appropriately. He was interested more than anything else in getting Jesus' attention for his own healing. So crying out in an intense emotional way, in his mind, was appropriate, no matter what religious norms that may have violated be quiet 
many of the people yelled at him. Now think about that for a second. If you were in the crowd, would you have been part of the crowd that told the guy to be quiet? And, and I'm not saying that to indict any of us, but I wonder if maybe more of us would have been in that crowd than wishes to admit it. Because we all have our own sense of religious appropriate norms. And we're wanting to see Jesus and do great things for us. And then somebody's back here is disrupting things and they're kind of going out of order. I mean, we're Americans. We stand in line. We take things appropriately. And this guy back here is trying to mess up the status quo. So shut up. And again, we, we tend to think, we tend to think, we're, no, I'd be, I would be in the crowd that would have carried the guy to the front. But I think if we're honest, we don't know which crowd we would have been in. Because we do have some of these norms of how it's, what's appropriate and not appropriate in church or with God or whatever else. So they, they, they be quiet, many of them yelled at him. <clears throat> this next line makes me fall in love with Bartimaeus. But he only shouted louder. Again, he cried, though. He cried out even louder. Son of David, have mercy on me. So imagine this blind man, probably with kind of a shrilly voice, because he's really shouting loud now. He's crodzoing way out loud now, and he knows this may be his last chance. Not just to get Jesus' attention, but his last chance for healing, for wholeness. So you can imagine this shrilling voice carrying over the crowd, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus heard him, and he stopped and he said, tell him to come here. And again, this is after people had already told the guy to shut up. So Jesus is kind of pushing against their mismanners' perception of what's appropriate. So they called the man. Cheer up, they said. Come on, he's calling you. Bartimaeus Maus threw aside his coat, jumped up, and came to Jesus. And Jesus asked this really incre- incredible question. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked. And you may have heard me talk about this before, but I, I love that question of Jesus. At first glance, it may seem a little bit not mean, but kind of like, Jesus, the guy's blind. What do you think he wants? I mean, you're saying, what do you want me to do for you? The guy, I mean, duh, I hate that word, my kids use it, but duh, Jesus, what do you think he wants? So Jesus isn't mocking the man, but I think there's something powerful in what Jesus is getting at here is that sometimes, if not maybe most of the time, if not maybe always, Jesus simply wants us to express what we want from him. It's our being able to express the reality of our desperate situation and to verbalize it before him that may be a large part of our faith and our healing. Because Jesus could have just healed the guy, but he says, what do you want me to do for you? And I've said this before in different situations here. If Jesus were to ask you that question, what is it that you know you can't do in your own human power that you would want me, Jesus, to do for you with this power that I have? We all have things we'd probably, if we were honest and could kind of find that place of our heart where we're discontent, frustrated, or, or uh, desperate about things in our lives, if we're honest, we'd all have something we'd say to Jesus. Jesus, could you, could you heal the heart of my younger sister? Could you heal the heart of my brother? Could you heal my parents' marriage? Could you, Jesus, could you do some of these? Could you do this? We all have places of desperation when those come out of. And then the, the, the blind man simply said, Bartimaeus simply said, Rabbi, I want to see. And Jesus said to him, go for your faith has healed you. Instantly, 
the man could see, and he followed Jesus down the road. So there's three examples of people that cried out to God. Another thing that happens in the New Testament is when Peter walks in the water, you know that story, and he starts to fall, and then he, cry, he cries out to Jesus, save me. But what's interesting in all these situations and many other healing situations, go to the next slide, there's four things that are true about each one of these people that I'm going to assert that maybe needs to be true about each one of us if we want to see, see Jesus bring about healing and wholeness into the areas of brokenness in our lives. Because all three of these people, and if you read the, read the Gospels, many of the people who sought Jesus for healing for themselves, for their daughter or son, the synagogue ruler Jairus, the woman who had this bleeding issue for many years, there's a similarity in all of them. And first of all, they're all, they're all desperate. Um, and I'm not looking for an answer, but, but what does desperation feel like? Desperation is the emotion you feel when nothing else has worked and you have nothing else on the horizon that you think even could work. And you know you need a miracle. It's, it's, that's kind of desperate. When we call desperation past the end of a game when you're down six points and 80 yards from the touchdown, desperation is when you've got one last shot at something, usually. A desperation shot at the end of an NCAA game, whatever. It's usually, it's my last shot. All these people had a spirit of desperation. They were all hopeful. They all actually believed Jesus could do something if they approached him. Otherwise, they wouldn't have gone to the extra effort and the intensity of trying to get in his way. So they believed something could happen. They'd heard about this man, Jesus. They knew he did things. They were all unashamed. They violated mismanners all over the place. They didn't care if what they were doing violated social norms whether people said shut up or the disciples said send her away she's bothering you jesus that's actually what the disciples said send her away she's bothering us these people didn't care they didn't care if they were violating social appropriate norms therefore receiving maybe some of the scorn of other people they didn't care and wonder, I wonder how much my own or your healing or wholeness might be blocked by our fear of doing something that might seem inappropriate. And so we're not maybe as unashamed toward Jesus as we'd like to be because we're trying to figure out if we should be more appropriate and more dignified. But these people were all unashamed. And you look at people throughout the New Testament that were healed or found wholeness in Jesus they were not hindered by social norms of what's acceptable. They, they simply wanted wholeness. And the last one I put down, they were all determined. Um, Barnabas shouted louder. The, son, the father of the son and the, and the mother of the daughter had demonic issues. They just shouted louder. They, they pushed their way to Jesus. There was a determination about them. And all those things combined... If you add those up, it seems to be like that's the heart that God's looking for from all of us to see the kind of change and wholeness and healing and joy and peace in our lives. So my challenge is simply, uh, go to the next slide, is what would it look like for you to cry out to Jesus? And what issue in your life would you cry out to Jesus for? Something that you've, you've tried 
to make the change. You've tried to get wholeness. You've tried for that part of your heart to be whole. You've tried to deal with that issue of brokenness in your life, in your marriage, in your relationship with your kids, in your relationship with your parents, whatever it is, whatever situation it is, you've tried. You've tried everything that you know. And perhaps the only other place to go to, which when we think about it, it's kind of odd that we don't often go to Jesus first in this kind of spirit, is to go to Jesus with a spirit of desperation and say, Lord, have mercy on me. I, I don't know how else to do this. I don't know how else to relate to my spouse in marriage. I don't know how else to relate to my kids. I don't know how else to think about my money because I'm confused. Jesus, have mercy on me. I don't know. To some degree, the place where God wants us is simply the place where we say to God, I don't know what else to do. And that seems to be like a really, really good place for people to be because those people who are in that place in the stories where they interact with Jesus all seem to have healing and wholeness and joy and peace follow. But there's something that's really hard about being in that place where we say, I don't know what to do. I have no else. I have no else. Because we feel helpless. We feel desperate. We feel some degree of shame. But somehow, if you can push those things away and say, you know what? I, I want what Jesus promised for me. And if he promised that he would bring wholeness and joy and peace into my life. Not, not the... Not the false kind of joy and peace simply means Jesus needs to rearrange the pieces on the board so you have no problems in life. Because Jesus seemed to be able to pour into people joy and peace in the midst of even suffering. In the book of Acts, there was joy and peace overflowing, and these people were getting whipped and suffering for the name of Jesus. So he didn't deliver them from those things. So Jesus, Jesus may not deliver you from what your situation is, but he's able to bring wholeness and joy and peace in those situations. So, and I'm not, you know, I'm not advocating you going out to Brown County State Park today and find an empty space and scream your head off to Jesus. I'm not saying that'd be wrong. I'm not advocating when you're driving in your car by yourself this week uh, necessarily that you scream out and crodzo and cry out to Jesus, have mercy on me. But I'm not saying that's wrong. And maybe it's simply a Maybe you write in a journal of Jesus and you write with some in pretty intense kind of realities of your life. So I'm not saying it has to be a shouting out verbally. I'm not saying it's not that, though. But you, I think we all know what that might feel like if we simply said to Jesus, have mercy on me, because I, I have no idea what to do now. I know the life I have now in my relationships the way I think about myself, about you, God, about others, something's not where it ought to be, and I don't know what else to do. And I think Jesus loves it when we come to him with that kind of a spirit and simply say to him, have mercy on me because I don't know what else to do. He, he doesn't hold us in contempt. He doesn't shame us. Um, and there may be others other Christians that might think what you're doing or the way you're going about it may seem like to them inappropriate, but don't let the opinions of others drive how you relate to Jesus. Don't let that happen. Because Jesus seems to be uh, impressed most by those who don't care about the opinions of other people. So uh, that's my challenge this morning, um, that we be those kind of people and 
your relationship with Jesus and how you process that even this week, I'm just going to challenge you to think maybe, maybe there's a way in which you interact with Jesus that you haven't before. Whatever that might look like, whatever way prodzo crying out may be to you. And you noticed in the psalm we read the start of the sermon today, or start of the service today, had David crying out to God. All right, this is David, king, warrior, mighty man, but he's expressing this deep, emotionally intense cry of desperation to God. So whether you think that might be less than masculine if you're a man, I'm not sure anybody would be compared to David in terms of masculinity. I mean, you can't find somebody that's probably a tougher guy in the Old Testament, but yet he's crying out to God. So in Old and New Testament, there are men and women all over the place that cry out to God because they realize there's no other way to get the kind of life you've always wanted. Joy, peace, courage. Um, can't get that apart from Jesus. Let's pray.